Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is 7.02 a.m. Well, actually, it's actually 7.01 a.m. That clock is just one minute <laughs> off. Um, and we have a pretty packed program um, this week. Um, we're going to be we're, we're going to feature three interviews um, this time round. Um, we've got an interview with um, Doctor uh, uh, Doctor Catherine Barraclough, who's the uh, Victorian Chair of Doctors for the Environment, talking about the health effects of smoke pollution. Mm. And then we have at seven forty-five, we have Liz um, from the Rainforest Action. Um, group um, talking about um, protest against BHB in northern Ecuador. And then at 8.10, we're going to be talking to Margarita Windisch, um, who is a social science um, member and activist about the recent um, deal that the Austrian Greens have made with the far-right People's Party in Austria. So, yeah, pretty packed program. And I guess before... Um, before we go with the um, rest of the program, I'd like to acknowledge that 3CR today is being broadcast um, from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be. Aboriginal land. Yes, and that's particularly um, uh, important because uh, this coming Sunday is Invasion Day, and so tune in to 3CR. Um, we will have First Nations broadcasters the whole day, and I believe they're also going to be streaming uh, the speeches from Invasion Day as well. Mm. Yes, and um, for those who um, don't know the details for the Invasion Day rally, highly um, encourage everyone to who is listening to attend. Um, it's going to be at our 11 a.m. outside um, the Parliament House. Um, there will also be a dawn service um, early in the morning on the Sunday at 5:30 a.m. at the King's Domain in Melbourne, which is just a quick, um, which is um, going to be a service dedicated to all the fallen um, Aboriginal um, heroes who um, fought against colonisation. And then um, there's also, if any, um, after the Invasion Day rally, there will also be the Share the Spirit Festival um, at the Treasury Gardens. I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> and um, I guess one thing to go, I guess, start a bit of discussion about in terms of um, Invasion Day is in the Australian, um, you know, um, Anthony Albanese, um, the leader of the opposition, um, basically said that. Australia Day is here to stay, stay and he has no intention of changing it, um, which kind of reflects, because I guess one of the things about, you know, the, as Indigenous people and activists have been saying for years, 
the the, the um, very act of celebrating Australia is essentially that of celebrating genocide. It's essentially celebrating um, the genocide of First Nations people. Um, and then there is also the um, the greater problem of the fact that it is a collective in media um, for the fact that it's actually essentially denying history. Um, but of course, I think it's not necessarily a surprise um, that you know the ALP are going behind um, and have no intention of changing day. But of course, the Liberal Party is all pretty much for celebrating because it's one of the last bas- it's one of the bastions of which they can um, push their sort of a the kind of nationalist sort of agenda mm-hmm. and basically justify the continued sort of dispossession and um, systematic racism against uh, Indigenous people. And um, I think it's um, really poignant to note that um, only just recently there was yet another uh, Indigenous death in custody as well, not very not long before Invasion Day, really highlighting that um, it hasn't stopped. Some people think, well, you know, this was hundreds of years in the past, let it go. It's not in the past. It still continues. It has to stop. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and maybe we'll move on to another story just right after this quick uh, announcement. Help FreeCR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help... Help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Right. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio, bringing you the latest um, news and analysis, um, drawing on the, the perspective of the 99% against the 1%. All right, I'll take it um, with Megan, who has a story she would like to kind of share with all of us. Yes. Um, so I'm actually personally involved in this campaign. Uh, there's currently a campaign to save a bunch of heritage trees in Gandolfo Gardens, which is near Mullen Station in the suburb of Coburg here in Melbourne. Uh, LXRP, who are doing projects at the moment to raise the rail and avoid um, uh, going through roads, uh, just to basically to make the traffic run smoother, uh, have decided in their wisdom that cutting down 110-plus-year-old uh, trees is a good idea uh, rather than listening to uh, the community and to also to engineers who've also offered uh, other solutions. Um, so just to put this in, into perspective, uh, Gandolfo Gardens was started in, I believe, 1910 or 1911. Uh, it was a community project. Uh, it was a bunch of uh, local residents who got together, pulled their money and created the park. Uh, the park has been there now for over 100 years. And so obviously some of the trees that are there are over 100 years. The importance of these trees cannot be understated. Uh, some of these old trees, so old trees, uh, just to give a couple of uh, points of perspective, on the benefits of older trees versus younger trees. 
Older trees are absolute carbon drawdown machines. Uh, they're very effective at um, drawing down carbon and keeping that carbon. And obviously in the climate crisis, we need as many mature trees to do this as possible. Uh, also, another thing that older trees do is provide a large canopy for uh, the, the park and surrounds. This creates a microclimate. Now, we know studies have shown that suburbs that have more trees, and in particular more mature trees, generally have cooler summers. So the microenvironments that these trees provide cool down the area and mean that there's more of a refuge for people who are looking to use the park and importantly also wildlife. Wildlife need these cooler microclimates in order to actually survive the hot summers that we're now going to increasingly face. Another thing about mature trees is, especially mature native trees, is that they provide uh, homes for native animals and they also provide an important passageway through the suburbs for these native animals. So mature trees contain holes, uh, so these hollows where native animals use them um, for homes and also they use them um, for, you know, just basic uh, homes. These are really important trees and when they're cut down, we will not see the likes of them in our lifetime again. These mature trees take a very long time to um, to grow and also uh, the newer trees that replace them will take decades and decades to get to the carbon efficiency and drawing down that carbon that these older trees also have. So there's a community effort um, that has been uh, led by residents in the area to prevent uh, LXRP, that's the um, the, the rail uh, project manager, um, from actually cutting down these trees. Now, this has been a, a long process. Uh, the first part of the process was apparently a consultation with LXRP where they would listen to community concerns. Um, they would uh, take these on board and possibly make changes if possible. Uh, many of us believe that the entire process of consultation has been a farce. Uh, we've been told various things, uh, and some of us have been told the direct opposite of what others have been told. Uh, there's been a lack of communication, a lack of any real communication. Um, there was even a point um, recently where several concerned citizens went up to peacefully question um, that you know what's happening with the project to the public office of LXRP. The door was um, shut on their faces. They were not uh, allowed to engage in conversation and the police were called to the to the location, which is interesting because this is a public office and the police were also bemused as to why they were being called because these people were doing exactly what the LXR people, um, LXRP people were, were had this office for. So it has gotten to the point of civil disobedience. Uh, so we have um, people down at the uh, area who were uh, linking arms and stopping the forklift getting fencing equipment out to fence off the entire area. Uh, we did stop them for a number of days, but unfortunately those fences have gone up. The trees are still up. That's the important thing. So the campaign hasn't stopped. Uh, unfortunately, in Coburg Station, which is the station nearest to me, uh, several 50-plus-year-old trees have now been cut down. And I have to say they've been cut down without um, the legally required required wildlife uh, observer there to pick up any injured or homeless um, wildlife. Uh, there's been uh, reports of harassment by the contractors. Uh, there's been reports of them illegally blocking off the footpath and the whole bunch of different things. And the community is continuing with their campaign to save these trees. It hasn't stopped. Um, and if you want to get involved, please uh, go onto Facebook 
and join Guardians of, of Gandolfo Gardens. That's G-A-N-D-O-L-F-O Gardens uh, and get involved in the action. Um, we really need to uh, save these trees, basically. Mm. Yeah, I've also just heard a report that um, if any listeners happen to live in um, the Brunswick-Coburg area, um, apparently the Gandolfo trees are basically going to be under attack <laughs> now and they need a- as many protesters um, there as possible to help defend um, the picket. Um, so, yeah, if anyone happens to live in Brunswick and Coburg, um, I really highly encourage you to get there down there now. Now, I guess I, I think, you know, a broader kind of political point, I guess, um, I like to make on this is it's just an example, I think, of, you know, how I think how capitalism generally doesn't really have any sort of respect for community consultation or especially bureaucratic capital, um, bot, um, state bodies. I mean, from my understanding, the um, the residents activist group have already actually put forward a, uh, an actual alternative, which actually does even threaten <laughs> any profits for yeah. um, or anything. It doesn't. It's not even. Um, it's not even a, a radical kind of alternative, um, and still the mm. government refuses to lay an inch and concede, um, which just shows um, the, the clear lack of democracy <laughs> in terms yeah. of um, how how these decisions are actually made. Because ultimately, these decisions are just made behind closed doors by a bunch of bureaucrats who have no interest in actually um, act, um, relating to what the community wants or what people agitate for. Absolutely. And yes, um, I've just seen that notification as well. Um, so the, if you can get down to Moreland Station in Coburg, please do. The residents need you. Uh, these trees are so important to save. And if you can get down there, um, we might save them. And I just want to point out as well, it was a bunch of residents that saved uh, the upfield train line in the 1990s when it was going to be cut um, and that the entire line was going to go. A bunch of residents actually did uh, nonviolent civil disobedience and actually saved that train line. And we have that train line because of these uh, this plucky band of residents. I mean, maybe we could sit under the shade of these 100-plus-year-old trees if these residents can win this campaign and, and save the trees for generations to come. So do get down there if you can. All right. I might play um, a quick announcement and we might get on to our first um, interview of the show. The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival... February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Green um, Left Radio. It is 7.15am on the 855am dial. And I'll get Megan to introduce our um, first guest to the program. 
Yes, so on the line we have Dr. Catherine Barraclough, who is the Victorian Chair of Doctors for the Environment Australia. Catherine's going to be speaking about um, the health effects and the long-term health effects of bushfire smoke exposure. Uh, And welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you. Excellent. Now, um, we spoke previously about uh, the health effects and um, there's an article coming up in the Green Left um, uh, about that, uh, that very topic. Um, can you give us a quick overview of Doctors for the Environment and what their aim is? So Doctors for the Environment is a group of, a relatively large group, about 1,300 doctors and medical students from across Australia. The concept that we work to is healthy planet, healthy people. And so that really centres around the idea that If we don't maintain and and protect a healthy environment, there's no way that people can stay healthy. Mm. It seems very obvious um, when you say it, but but it's often forgotten that we are absolutely dependent on having clean air, clean water. Um, We need um, stable, healthy soils to grow nutritious foods, and we need a relatively stable climate. Um, So what we do is we work to protect the environment for the sake of protecting human health. Excellent. And um, just in the regards to um, the, the bushfire crisis that we've had, um, we, we had we've spoken previously about the long-term health effects, and I know that something that you mentioned stuck with me. This crisis is absolutely unprecedented. We don't seem to have any data to show what the short, medium and long-term effects of bushfire smoke exposure are. Can you talk about that and what they might be and how uh, we might uh, come to, to find these out? Well, we have some idea of the potential short-term impact. So what, what we do know is that smoke is, is made, or bushfire smoke is made up of a really complex mix of gases and particles. You know, there are hundreds of different components of bushfire smoke, and many of those have documented health effects. So, for instance, probably the most damaging particle in bushfire smoke is one called PM2.5. So PM stands for particulate matter, and 2.5 refers to the size of these particles, and they're so tiny that they can be inhaled very deeply into the lungs. In, in a, even well people with no underlying medical conditions, they can be very irritating to the respiratory tract, so they can cause eye, nose, throat irritation, um, things like wheeze and cough and shortness of breath. But they can be really problematic in people with underlying conditions like asthma or, or chronic obstructive airways disease. The other problem with these particles is that, is that they can be absorbed very deeply into the lungs, uh, sorry, from the lungs, be absorbed into the bloodstream and, and lead to inflammation. And from there, they've been associated with a whole range of health impacts. Um, these include things like heart attacks, lung cancer, um, worsening of diabetes, um, preterm birth. So they're a particular concern in, in pregnant women. More recently, there have been studies linking these very small particles with things like um, blood infections, um, fluid and electrolyte disorders, urinary tract infections, acute kidney injury, so they're really um, dangerous particles and, and we, we sort of know that they cause these health impacts. What we don't know is, is what sort of health impacts they will lead to in the context of these, or sort of the, the, the degree of impacts we will see in relation to these sort of bushfires. Um, we know that being exposed to higher pollution levels for longer time carries an increased risk of health impacts, a bit like cigarette smoking. But it can be really difficult to predict the risks accurately until after the event because risks will vary between individuals depending on, you know, things like whether they have underlying health conditions. Um, yeah, as you said, exposure to bushfire smoke over prolonged periods is absolutely uncharted territory. Um, we, what's even more uncertain 
is what sort of health impacts we'll see in the medium to longer term. It's probably reasonable to assume we will see um, quite substantial health impacts. We know um, from some of the data that's come out of the Hazelwood coal mine fires, which burnt for six weeks, that, that there were impacts in the medium term. And what's been shown from those fires is that adults had an increased rate of respiratory symptoms even a year out from the event. Um, children who were exposed to the mine fire smoke either in utero um, or in the first two years of their life had more respiratory tract infections as reported by their parents. So you know, there's that sort of data that, that shows that we do see medium-term impacts. But um, as I said, exactly what we'll see from these fires you know, will only be shown over time. Mm. And it's interesting. Um, I think a lot of uh, the general populace is under the impression that people who are vulnerable already, you know, those with respiratory infections, uh, those who are already ill, are only going to be the, the only ones who are going to be affected by this fire. But what um, your data seems to be saying is that healthy people and, you know, children who are exposed to this either, you know, early in life or in utero are also going to be um, possibly suffering these long-term effects. Um, you know, do you think that there's maybe a disconnect between between uh, the community's perception of the health effects of smoke and what the, the health effects of smoke are in that um, perhaps we are under this false assumption that healthy people aren't really going to be affected by the smoke? Um, look, I mean, I think to some extent, uh, my perception just from being out and about over the last you know, few weeks is that the general population is relatively concerned. And I've got young children and lots of friends with young children and and it, I mean, it's really difficult to know what to do on those polluted days. It, it does it intuitively makes sense that sending your kids outside to breathe in that air is not good for them. And I think, you know, there has been a lot of general public concern. I mean, at the same time, you know, we see people still out exercising and riding their bikes, etc. Which, which I suggest, I suppose, suggests there may be a disconnect. The thing to think about there, though, is is that, you know, what the recommendation is is to stay inside and, and put on your air conditioner and internally circulate air if you can. Not all, all people have well-sealed houses with air conditioners. Mm. I mean, we only have one car in our house and, and so I was forced to ride to work on those days despite the fact that that, um, you know, is, is theoretically not a sensible thing to do. So, you know, I think it's really important we get the information out there that everyone is at risk so that there's, there's as little disconnect as possible, but, but also to recognise that not everyone has the ability to control you know, their external environment. And so we really need to make sure that as a, as a society we look out for those people and, and put in measures so that people can be as safe as possible during these sorts of events. Absolutely. Um, it sort of brings to the point of, um, you know, 3CR is all about um, giving a voice to the marginalised. Um, you know, we, we haven't really probably uh, touched on uh, the effects of people who are homeless, who are constantly exposed to the yeah. smoke and, um, you know, people who can't particularly alter their behaviour if they work outside and they do exercise outside as yeah. part of their work, those sorts of things. Now, that sort of brings me to the point of um, what kind of practical measures can we take to minimise our exposure to smoke? I know we've spoken about this previously, and we'll talk about the complications of the of the things that we um, things we might be able to do as well. Yeah, so the, the the most commonly given advice is that if you can stay inside, so you know, close up your house before the smoke impacts. Um, you know, don't be in a situation where you're surrounded by the smoke if you can help it. Um, avoid strenuous activity if you are breathing deeply. It, it follows from that that you're inhaling all these. Um, polluting particles further into your lungs so you know try to avoid exercise 
Um, air conditioners often suck in air from outside, so if you do have an air conditioner and you have it on, see if you can alter it so that it recirculates air inside. Um, if you've got any sort of predisposing um, medical condition or a condition that predisposes you to, to more trouble during these sorts of events, make sure that you take any prescribed medications. If you have a worsening of symptoms, make sure you seek medical help relatively quickly. Um, I think a really big one is just to look out for each other. So if you have neighbours or people that you know of um, that you think may be at particular risk, check in on them. Um, the other the big question that's been um, out and about is about masks mm. and whether they're protective. Um, standard masks are not. So the kind of masks that, for instance, you know, surgeons wear in operating theatres or the, the paper and cloth masks the, that you can get don't filter out those very fine damaging particles that... Um, we've talked about just now. There are masks called P2 masks that are designed to filter out PM2.5. And the caveat to that is that those masks have to be incredibly well fitted if they're going to work. So if you have any sort of leak around the face, um, they're not going to work. They can be hard to fit well in children. Um, they're definitely not going to seal well if you are a person with facial hair. So a risk with those masks is that they can give a false sense of security and they really should only be used as a backstop. They shouldn't be considered you know, the, the stopgap measure to prevent impacts from air pollution. The other issue is, you know, based in Melbourne, there, there has been a, a major shortage of, of P2 masks that have mm. been sold out over this, this period. So, um, you, know, you know, yes, they may help, but they're certainly not perfect and certainly not the answer. I suppose the other thing is that those masks were not designed for these sort of conditions. They're designed for people who work in um, certain occupations where they may be exposed. They've never been tested on a sort of population-wide level under conditions of prolonged bushfire smoke. So in other words, we don't really know if these masks are effective and we won't really start to know until uh, we've actually tested them out. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yes. I mean, that, that sort of all of this research is really important because uh, you know, I think a major thing we have to recognise is that this is unlikely to be a one-off event. Our, our climate is changing. We, we were warned that we would see these kind of events and then the likelihood is we will see more of them. So, you know, background research into um, what works, what doesn't work, which populations are particularly vulnerable, um, you know, how we can best prepare as a society is incredibly important going forward. Yeah. In terms of this um, time of kind of crisis around um, the bushfire smoke, um, you know, whether it's your personal opinion or, or that of um, doctors um, for the environment, um, what, are, what, are you, what are some of the demands that you think um, that the federal government should be doing, um, especially in terms of funding, et cetera, to kind of address um, the kind of health impacts of this, um, of this bushfire smoke? Well, I mean, the, the bushfires are absolutely a wake-up call to all of us, and I think particularly, hopefully, our government to seriously address the changing climate that is threatening our health and lives. You know, we we all know that climate change is influencing these bushfires you know, and extreme weather events the world over. The other thing that we know is that climate change is, is the greatest health threat facing us. You know, this has been recognised by the medical community at large, you know, including the World Health Organisation, and what follows from this is that we absolutely need to cut carbon pollution and that is a major um, ask of DEA um, for our federal government. You know, if our government doesn't, le doesn't urgently address emissions, then you know, all the effort 
um, it's pouring into fighting fires and recovery efforts um, are really just band-aids. Um, you know, so, so really that is a major ask. We, we need to address our emissions. We so desperately need federal leadership in this space um, for the sake of human health. The other thing um, that we need is a climate and health strategy. Yes. And some countries are quite advanced in this area. We certainly are not in Australia. You know, if we acknowledge that climate change is the greatest health threat facing us, we need to prepare for the impact that's going to have. Um, you know, there are fundamental gaps in policy at the moment. Everything is quite peace, quite piecemeal. Um, so we need to work out how best to minimise and respond to the health impacts of climate change. Um, so, you know, the kind of things a climate and health strategy would look at is pathways to significant investment in appropriate research, as I mentioned before. Um, we also need to think about um, which sort of climate change mitigation strategies um, would be the most effective at protecting health. So there are all sorts of things we need to do to cut carbon emissions, but certain policies um, would have really substantial benefits for human health at the same time. And so there needs to be a lot of thought into promoting and pushing those sorts of things. You know, for instance, um, if we could redesign our cities in such a way that they promoted active transport, things like walking and cycling, um, that would not only address the carbon emissions that arise from motor vehicles, but they would also that would also reduce air pollution. It would also mean that our population would be more physically active and you know, physical inactivity is a major killer in our society. So that's sort of a win-win um, solution that, that we should be thinking about going forward. Mm. And if, um, so if someone was, uh, so a, a, a medical student or a doctor who was, in, who's very keen to learn more about this and to perhaps get involved, how would they get involved with Doctors for the Environment Australia? You know, can you give us some, um, the website and, and what they, how they might actually get involved? Yeah, so we are always, um, on the lookout for new members. You know, the more members we have, the more influence and ability to expand our reach. Um, Doctors for the Environment has a huge range of resources on their website that are publicly available to anyone. Um, in terms of membership, there's a there's a button on the website that you can press to join. Um, the website for DEA is DEA for Doctors for the Environment Australia.org.au. Excellent. And uh, was there anything, we're, we're getting to the end of the, um, the interview, but was there anything that we haven't touched on or anything that you wanted to reiterate uh, in, in these last minutes? I suppose one thing that I, I didn't mention in, in terms of a climate and health strategy, we also need to make sure that we prepare our healthcare system. So yes. we will see an, an increasing burden of disease as a result of climate change. Um, you know, we know that in the, bush, the very high bushfire smoke period in Sydney before Christmas, there was a 25% increase in presentations to hospital with respiratory problems and a 30% increase in ambulance call-outs. You know, that, that really puts strain on the healthcare system, so we need to make sure that our, our healthcare system is um, able to cope as well. So I think really the big things that have to come out of this is dealing with the risks we're facing now and making sure that people stay safe, but then in addition to that, really looking at the background issues that are driving these fires. Um, and the consequences, so, you know, urgently addressing our emissions um, and then making sure that our communities, our healthcare system, um, our societies are, are prepared and able to cope for what will come in the future. 
Absolutely, and it will come. Thank you so much, Catherine. We uh, we appreciate that you've come on to the show and keep up the good work for, with Doctors for the Environment of Australia. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having you. me. So that was Dr. Catherine Barraclow, who is the Chair of Doctors for the Environment Australia in Victoria, uh, talking about the health effects of um, long-term exposure or even short-term exposure to the bushfire smoke amidst this bushfire crisis. All right. Um, Thanks for listening. Um, You're listening to Green Left um, Radio. We'll just play a quick announcement and then move on to some news and analysis from some upcoming um, news articles um, from the Green Left. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Watching the sun rise from polluted seas. Fishing in the rivers for a blue algae. Breathing the sand here could kill Omania. The whole earth becoming a huge gas chamber. To the first people, January 26 signifies the beginning of colonialism, invasion and displacement leading to 250 years of resistance, survival and protest. Join 3CR from 9am to 4pm on Sunday the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. 3CR's First Nations broadcasters will be bringing you black and deadly music, news and views from activists around the country as we discuss genocide, sovereignty, treaty, pay the rent, deaths in custody, truth and justice and the law of the land. We'll be crossing live to the steps of Victorian Parliament from 11am for speeches and interviews at the Melbourne Invasion Day Rally. So stay tuned to 3CR from 9am to 4pm this Sunday, the 26th of January. Right, you're listening to Green Left. Um, that was just an announcement for Invasion Day. Um, yeah, just to encourage you again to, um, for anyone who might have, um, just started listening to the program, um, to please attend, um, the Invasion Day rally. We need to make it as big as possible. In fact, it's, um, one of those rallies that has been consistently getting bigger and bigger every year. In fact, I think, mm. um, Last year, attracted over 20,000 or 15,000 or so, or possibly even more than that, might be up to 30 to 50,000. Now, um, also, I just want to point out as well that um, consistently over the last couple of years, the Invasion Day rally itself has definitely drowned um, the pop, like the numbers that are actually celebrating Australia Day as well. So, yeah, that's quite a heartening thing. Now, did you want to start with uh, the article that we're going to look at? Yeah, so um, one of the things we've just been, um, one of the constant kind of things that have we, we've been discussing um, in, on our program since we came back has been the the whole um, climate crisis, um, and I think one of the things that um, that has been shown is that First Nations communities have been um, showing a lead in the fire crisis. And that is, as um, written here by Peter Boyle, at the height of the fire crisis over the new year, an Aboriginal elder who had evacuated from Lake um, Entrance um, to Barnsdown, Victoria, joined other Iraqis in registering for emergency relief, but he was told by a St. Vincent D. Poor staffer that the agency had helped enough of your people today, given a $20 fuel voucher and told not to tell other Aboriginal people about it. The elder walked um, out humiliated and asked his niece to return the voucher. This racist incident um, was first um, um, 
revealed um, in a Facebook post by a young Aboriginal man, Philip Stewart. Other First Nations people have experienced other um, experiences of racism from welfare agencies. And, of course, St. Vincent D. Pauls has since apologised to the um, elders' family. And I think the un, one of the things about this bushfire crisis um, is that across, um, which has um, hit across several states over the New Year period, have burnt at least 8.4 million hectares, and many are still burning out of control. And within this, disproportionately, Indigenous communities have been hard hit, losing homes and community self-service centre, um, centres. And in this one, you know, First Nations... Um, Communities not only have to deal with racism and, and seek an emergency relief, they will have less private resources with which to recover. But I guess on the kind of positive thing I kind of want to raise is, but these, um, is that Aboriginal and First Nations communities are, you know, have, are playing a powerful role in, and continuing to play um, in fighting the fires and organising relief. The Rec Bay Rural Fire Service Brigade, um, Brigade on the New South Wales South Coast is one example. All but two of their 28 person crew are First Nations people, according to an ABC interview with Brigade Officer Kayleen um, McLeod. And Indigenous firefighters have also been active on fire fronts in the Blue Mountains, and the New South Wales RFS has recently created two new um, all new Indigenous fighting crews based in the state's west. And I think an, uh, another kind of example um, I think to bring up has been one of the other volunteer Aboriginal firefighters has um, who has been fighting the fires for weeks is um, the author Bruce Pascal, whose best-selling book, um, Dark Emu, explores how racist colonial writers buried information about sophisticated Indigenous land management and farming and fishing technologies, which I think has had the impact of radically reshaping our understandings of pre-colonial Aboriginal societies. And I think one of the things that has been interesting coming out of this fire crisis has it's prompted a lot more people um, um, to look at traditional Aboriginal land management practices, including cultural burning, for clues about how to to ameliorate future um, fire emergencies. And, of course, there's a growing understanding um, that First Nations communities' strong strong traditions of collectivity and working with country shows a way forward. But, of course, it's not without a kind of right-wing kind of backlash. Um, You know, many are are, are hell-bent on rolling this progressive development back, um, have basically, you know, have essentially picked on... um, Bruce Pascal, viciously attacking his book and Aboriginal identity. Um, one of the more prominent figures in this whole debate is right-wing columnist um, Andrew Bolt, who's um, as is conservative Aboriginal lawyer and businesswoman Josephine Cashman, a member of PM's Scott Morrison's Liberal National Government's hand-picked Indigenous Advisory Group. Cashman wrote to um, Home Affairs Minister um, Peter Dutton last December asking for an investigation of PASCO for dishonesty offences because she disputed his claims to Indigenous ancestry. And since Dutton has now asked um, the Australian Federal um, Police to investigate, but just a quick update on that, um, the Australian Federal Police have since dropped the kind of investigation Mm. And I think one of the other things about um, about this, and this is where Peter Boyle kind of goes on to, is I think this all comes, I think, in a in a particular political context. And I think 
behind all this is really um, powerful corporate interests um, that want Australia to continue its criminal role as the third largest fossil fuel exporter in the world. They have, you know, been desperately trying to convince us that the fire emergency is not a result of climate change, despite the overwhelming scientific evidence. Um, and the right's new culture war is also about justifying the push by state and federal coalition governments to allow logging in national parks and the rollback of ecological landfilling and regulations. And, um, and of course, fire, um, and of course, you know, um, one of the things is Fire Nation, First Nations fire management experts such as the Fire Sticks Alliance are arguing for a different approach to managing fire. Um, um, cultural burning can include burning or prevention of burning of country for the health of particular um, plants and animals such as native grasses, emu, black river, potoroo, bush foods, threatened species or biodiversity in general. It may involve patch burning to create different fire intervals across the landscape or it could be used for fire and hazard reduction. Indigenous fire practitioner um, Victor Stephensing said last November that he had been warning about a bushfire crisis for years and it was due to long-term land mismanagement. And um, Olivia Costello, Chief Executive of the Fire Sticks Alliance, who explained to PA Media, um, PA Media journalist Megan Baines that while traditional Aboriginal um, fire management does involve setting fires at regular interviews, these are smaller and cooler burns than the standard official hazard reduction um, practices. And new methods of um, hazard reduction involve planned burns that remove as much vegetation as possible. And I think cultural burning, however, also requires practitioners to have strong cultural connections to the land, including being on country, learning by observation and sharing information to understand best when is the right time to burn, which takes into account the breeding season of animals and plant cycles, not just um, the weather. And I think one of the things of why this sort of thing is not being really taken up by the, um, the political establishment is this approach doesn't necessarily fit in with the private ownership of land, uh, a system which allows nature to be pillaged. From the, from the point of view of powerful vested interests, this approach is unacceptable, and this is why the new, um, the right's new culture war has traditional Aboriginal land and um, management in its sights. Yes, and it's definitely something to note that cultural burning is very distinct to the or the burning that we currently do um, with with our so-called land management. It's definitely a different type of burning and a different type of land management that is very very different and has different outcomes. And you know, it seems to have superior outcomes uh, than what we've been doing at the moment. And also this whole idea that, um, you know, it's arsonists and greenies that are causing, uh, the fire. That's completely ridiculous. Uh, you know, I, I'm a scientifically minded person. I'm, I'm inclined to listen to the scientists, the many thousands of scientists that are telling us that this is definitely climate change. We have to rail against the right wing narrative that this is, um, all about, you know, governments that are trying to pander to green votes and, and not, you know, not logging in certain areas and not backburning in others. We have to, speak out against those things because they really are taking a hold. I notice on Facebook that there's certain sort of viral things that are going around. Um, it's totally ridiculous. And we do need to listen to um, Indigenous land management experts. Um, however, unfortunately, we have, a, we have a, a problem in that our government 
doesn't particularly like First Nations and First Nation cultures and therefore is willing to ignore the, um, you know, the benefits of uh, land management from that perspective. Yeah, I think it is becoming uh, a bit of a political demand around the climate movement. In fact, there's a rally, um, you know, some of the um, rallies um, that have happened recently have raised this question about um, giving um, giving funding to Indigenous land management practices. And I think, you know, one of the things with um, the nature of capitalism is that is it is not necessary. It is always looking to drive down the cost of labour, and I think in some ways there is the extra element of racism towards Indigenous people, but there's also the extra element of the fact that uh, they will not want to concede to the idea of giving any sort of funding to labour-intensive um, practices mm. um, because it's far um, because Indigenous land management practices are far more labour-intensive than traditional um, hazard reduction. And also, I want to point out a positive thing. Um, so there has been a program for a number of years to get more Indigenous First Nations uh, people on country as um, uh, as rangers. Uh, so this kind of thing has already been set up. If we wanted to utilise that expertise, we could because we are at, we ha- there, there's a concerted effort to get more First Nations people on country and managing the land as part of um, ranger programs. So this is being set up. We can do this. It's just we need the political will to do it. Okay, we'll play um, a quick announcement and get on to our second interview of um, for the program. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Right, you are listening to um, Green Left um, Radio. Um, it is now 7:45 a.m., and on the line we have Elizabeth um, Downs, um, um, who is part of the Rainforest Action Group. And um, Rainforest Action Group has um, recently reported on on a clash between protesters in northern Ecuador um, against um, BHP. Um, so yeah, good morning, Liz. Good morning. Yeah, so um, Liz, could you give us a bit of background on this um, campaign against um, BHB um, in northern Ecuador? Sure. Um, so I guess, I mean, the beginning of the, the issue is that in 2017, a large amount of Ecuador was um, concessioned to foreign mining companies, and um, quite a few of these mining companies are actually Australian, including BHP. Um, and um, they're covering, you know, uh, indigenous lands involved, and there's, you know, a lot of uh, pristine rainforest and other things. And in this particular northern, northwestern part of Ecuador, known as Intag, they've been fighting mining already for about 30 years. Various, you know, Chinese and Chilean <laughs> um, mining companies, and they discovered that BHP had two large concessions. 
over nine of their communities um, and BHP obtained exploration licences. The process for um, obtaining those licences involved almost no community consent whatsoever. So they've been fighting, trying to keep um, company representatives from coming in for about two years and it's just started to um, escalate in the past month. So, um, yeah, do you want me to go on? Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. I thought, mm-hmm. I, 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 yes, please. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so on, on the, in the 15th of December, BHP entered a community called Kazarbamba, which is a very small community, and um, tried to hold a meeting. And um, some other um, environmental groups from around the area tried to enter the meeting because it's their community involved as well, and the BHP representatives packed up their computer equipment and fled. Um, and yeah, the, the people at the meeting were sort of calling out, well, why are you running away? What, what have you got to hide? And um, it, the, the BHP came out with a statement saying, well, you know, uh, this, this was just for the community members and we shouldn't have other people from other communities entering the meeting. And, and you know, and um, as, as it turns out... Um, so anyway, they they again tried to. What what they're doing is they're holding meetings just with pro mining, certain pro mining people, which is a minority, and not inviting community presidents or the community council or you know anybody else. Basically, trying to hold the meetings secretly. They've been going in and um, sort of giving Christmas gifts and lollies to, to pro mining families for the kids. Wow. Doing all kinds of really kind of. Um, underhand methods for ingratiating their way in. And as soon as the... Um, yeah, and, and, you know, this dodgy consent process is actually going against the securities law, which demands that companies uh, no- notify on the stock exchanges where they're listed um, whether if there have been any problems with, you know, things like um, c- you know, c- community resistance to their projects. So they are, you know, if, if any of this... Um, any resistance gets out, they're obliged to report it to the stock exchange and they don't want to do that, so they're just going to run away. <laughs> anyway, so that was mid-December. Um, that was closely followed by another incident in a nearby community where they again tried to enter. They were, the doors were closed by the community. They were forced to stay and present their PR sort of stuff. Um, and then they offered about 10 jobs to the community and um, offered some some kind of funding support from an unspecified um, found sort of charity foundation, which they weren't game to, you know, they weren't game to actually mention the name of the charity foundation or any any details or any information whatsoever about that or the jobs. The community got annoyed. Um, a couple of weeks later, the communities of Intag put up a roadblock. And again, when this was in the... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, on the 14th of January, they, um, three community, uh, BHP reps tried to enter the community flanked by 30 police um, <laughs> who tried to force their way through the roadblocks and, again, were pushed back. So there's been this sort of escalating organisation amongst the these um, nine affected communities. And, and last week they actually had a meeting where about 350 people attended and those people unanimously made a resol- you know several resolutions 
for no mining in the entire area. So, yeah, basically it's it's where it's at right now. Hmm. So it's it really is obvious that, um, you know, big mining companies seem to be able to get away with absolutely steamrolling community concerns. And this is exactly. part of um, that whole idea that profit comes uh, over, you know, and profit and, and in progress in inverted commas, you know, in commas becomes uh, the, the sort of the be-all, end-all, and community concerns are just these things that can be pushed away. How is the community feeling at the moment? Like, you know, how what what are they going to do in, in, um, in light of what's happened? Well, at um, last Saturday's meeting, they made a number of very strong resolutions, and one of those resolutions was, you know, well, it, 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 the top of the resolution list was there is to be no mining in, in TAG whatsoever, any mining company. Mm. Um, they've, 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 they've got a demand for um, existing ordinance laws to be put in place for environmental protection. There are very strong existing laws in Ecuador um, at the constitutional level for protection of the environment and protection of communities and for and a consultation for Indigenous rights, all that kind of thing. But um, at the ordinance level, these laws aren't always applied. They're, they're weighed aside far too easily in favour of um, extractive industry. So they want the, the current laws to be applied. They also want new ordinance laws to be applied, particularly to um, prior and informed consent. And they say that if, if these aren't applied, then they will basically do their own justice. They will stop the companies. They will continue to blockade. Mm. So yeah, there's a number of other things that they, they want. They, they want to establish a, a regional um, council to, you know, an anti-mining, um, you know, quite a strong, a strong sort of network of organisations, so they can get a little bit stronger. Because what they're getting now is, is a much more militarised presence from the government. Mm. Uh, yeah, so it's that's pretty much where they're at. So they're not backing down, which is great. Is there? A, they're fantastic. They're amazing. Yeah, I mean, we could learn a thing or two from them. You know, what is, is there a real risk of danger to these activists? I mean, we know that um, you know, in in parts of the world, we have activists being murdered, um, you know, physically threatened, etc. What kind of situation, uh, safety-wise, is there? Well. There have been hot spots in Ecuador around mining already over the last um, two years in particular, or maybe last five years. Um, we can see from other parts. Well, you know, the, the um, in the, the, the sort of headwaters of the Amazon in Shua territory, it's one of the indigenous areas um, where they've had sort of mining threats for about the past five years. They have had assassinations. Mm. Um, they've had cover-ups. They've had yeah, um, major leaders have been found with their bodies floating in the river and that kind of thing. It hasn't been nice, and mm. and that's all been to push major mining projects through. So, in in terms of this area, who knows? There has been um, trouble with yeah. One of the main things, the you know, this area is um, once gold has been sort of you know flagged in this area. They tend to get besieged with um, uh, informal or illegal mining operations very quickly. Mm. So, um, and one of these, these um, issues happened in one of Gina Reinhardt's concessions, quite close to the BHP ones that we've been talking about last year. 
And this involved, you know, a lot of militarisation. There were, you know, sort of drug cartels coming in over the border from Colombia. It was a complete mess. And, um, so it's very complicated. There's a lot of different ways in which this could go. Um, you know, so, yeah, it needs to be, yeah, monitored quite closely. Yeah. And is there anything that uh, the Australian community can do to support these activists? What, what sort of, I mean, we're, we're way over here, but, you know, is there anything that we can do to help them in their struggle? Yes. Yeah, so um, there's a few things. I mean, where, where I guess it needs to be really taken is shareholder activism. So, you know, looking at, I mean, the case of BHP, um, they are obliged to report to their shareholders mm. <laughs> what's going on. Uh, you know, we, we, we went to BHP's AGM last year and asked awkward questions. And, you know, they, 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 BHP has this incredibly, um, you know, has this PR that's based all around environmental and social responsibility. Yeah. And they, they, they're claiming to be the world's climate leader and they, they want to be the world's biggest, um, you know, producer of renewables. So if people in Australia were to sort of understand how much, um, so there's not only shareholder, you know, where you invest, but also, you know, if you are um, heading for <laughs> buying an electric car, for example, a lot of the copper that's going to make, you know, go to those, um, uh, that kind of technology will, will be mined out of Ecuador, not necessarily by BHP, but by, you know, um, them and other companies. Um so there's that in the immediate situation. There's we, we are um, always looking for funding because mm-hmm. to hold community meetings, you know, they, they, to, to bring people in from um, far-flung parts of rural areas does cost money, and there needs to be catering. They they, they need money to bring in sort of things like um, chief geophysicists in from Quito to. So we, we are running a fundraising campaign, and we're sending money to them pretty often. Um, also, there's a legal fight at the moment happening. Um, it's not a BHP. It, it's still in the same area, but it's, it's a gold mine that's just been opened by a state-owned company in Ecuador. Um, and they are trying to hire some environmental lawyers to get this case up to the Constitutional Court. So there's always money. <laughs> um, people can hop on our website, which is www.rainforestactiongroup.com. Um yeah, .org, sorry. <laughs> and, yeah, I think that's... It's mainly kind of being aware, really. People are not often aware of what, you know, it, it, these companies are doing in Australia, not only in Australia, but also in particularly in developing countries with very vulnerable um, environments. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, so thanks very much, um, Liz. Do you uh, have, like, any <laughs> um, final comments you'd like to make um, for the program? Um, no, uh, yep, no, thanks for for um, having me. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. All right. That was um, Elizabeth Downs from um, the Rainforest um, Action Network um, talking about um, the protests and the campaign against BHP in northern Ecuador, which is um, still ongoing. Um, but it's always a good um, to get a sort of um, feel for some of these kind of international struggles and something that um, Green Left Radio is um, committed to, um, to covering any kind of struggle against oppression. Now, um, I like to, I'll just play a quick um, announcement and we'll probably move on to the activist calendar. It's only 7.58am, um, so we'll go 
and play just play a quick announcement. Just got to find something to play. Yeah. Yeah. Help Freesia support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our song line, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others. The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help. Keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Okay, so this is Sheba. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Tune in Mondays, 10.30 a.m. for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. Right, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is 8 a.m. Um, so it's now to, it's time for the activist calendar to announce, um, what's coming up, um, in the political world in terms of activist events, rallies and other, um, political, um, and public forums. Um, today at 4.30 p.m., there's going to be, um, the third, um, series of SAC SCOMO, um, fight for climate justice rallies. It's going to be happening at 4.30 p.m. at the Liberal HQ which I'm pretty sure is, I think it's at, just let me quickly get the address, sorry. <laughs> uh, so this activist uh, rally is now targeting Liberal headquarters, whereas previously they were at um, the State Library. Uh, this is a personalised one. Um, so SACSCOMO is the, um, the, the call, putting pressure on politicians to be accountable for what they have done. And basically, we have a bunch of climate criminals who are in power. And SACSCOMO is um, a rally call and um, and basically making people accountable for their yeah. actions. Found out where it is. It's at 60 Collins Street at the Melbourne CBD um, at the Liberal Party Victoria HQ. So that's happening at 4.30pm. Um, I also would probably recommend... Um, if you can go to the Gandalf Gardens for that ongoing protest um, to save the trees. Um, some other events um, that are happening is um, on Saturday, there's going to be a protest, No War on Iran, organised by the Workers' Student Alliance along with Spirit of Eureka. And that will be happening at 1pm at the State Library, Saturday, January the 25th. On Sunday, um, January 26th, um, there'll be the Invasion Day um, Dawn Service at um, the Memorial Shrine of Remembrance um, at 5.30am. And then there'll be the Invasion Day Rally in March at 11am at Parliament at the Spring Street. And um, just one thing to note about Invasion Day um, this year is there will be, there'll be a number of different sort of marginalised groups and 
and other sort of ethnic groups who will be organising their own contingents. In fact, I think the Anti-Colonial Asian Alliance is organising their own contingent. Um, the Jewish Democratic Society is organising their own contingent. There's also, I think, a Muslim contingent. Um, and there's also an LGBTIQ um, community um, um, contingent also happening. On Monday night at um, 6 p.m., um, there'll be an organising meeting for a United Climate Action, um, which is trying to, um, which is bringing together activists from different groups to organise a National Day of Action for the 22nd of February. There'll be a public forum on the 28th of January, Tuesday, um, which is titled Bushfires, Corporate Greed and Climate, a Crisis of Capitalism. And that'll be happening at on Tuesday, the 28th of January at 6.30pm, meal from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city. Um, and then on Thursday, um, um January the 30th, there'll be a film screening, Seberg, based on the story of the star of Breathless and the French New Wave, Jean Seberg, who in um, the late 1960s was targeted by illegal FBI surveillance. And so that be be um, screening at the Palace Cinema, um, Thursday, January the 30th. And then on Sunday, um, February the 2nd to Thursday, January the 6th, there'll be the Canberra People's Climate Assembly, which is bringing together all sorts of different sort of climate activist groups. Um, I think there might potentially be some bus rides being organised to it, but I'm not completely sure, but that's going to be a big sort of mobilisation um, organised by a different a range of different groups. And then on Sunday, February the 2nd, there'll be the Midsummer's Pride March at um, 11am Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. On Sunday, um, February the 9th, there'll be a rally, No Right to Discriminate, um, opposed to religious um, discrimination bills, and they'll be happening at 1pm at the State Library. And then Friday, 14th to the fi- um, 15th February, there'll be the National Climate Emergency Summit at the Melbourne Town Hall. And then Saturday, um, February 22nd, there'll be the Climate Crisis National Day of, um, of Action. And just some, another event I think that's, um, just in regional and Geelong, Victoria will be, um, there'll be a public forum, um, can, um, can capitalism, uh, I think something about the climate crisis and capitalism that's happening just at 6 p.m. at the Shrades Hall tonight. Oh, yes, here it is. Can cap- Public meeting, can capitalism solve the climate crisis? And they'll be happening at 6pm at the Activist Centre, Shrades Hall, 127 Myers Street in Geelong, and it's hosted by Socialist Alliance. And then, yeah, I think that's um, pretty much it, unless there's any other um, announcements you have. Not that I can think of, but I do want to do another plug um, for the Gandolfo Gardens campaign. They really need assistance at the moment. There are, apparently there's cherry pickers there, uh, which means that uh, cutting down the trees uh, could possibly be imminent. If you can get down to Moreland Station in Coburg, Moreland Station is part of the Upfield train line. You can head there via the train line or by, via the number 19 tram if you're travelling by public transport. Uh, really important to save these trees for so many reasons, for wildlife, for homes, for wildlife passages, to create cool microclimates, and the fact that we hardly have any heritage trees um, in uh, the Coburg area anymore. All right. Okay, I'll just... Actually, I think um, maybe for the next two minutes before we go to our final interview, I'll just play a quick um, song, um, Difficult by Cable Tires.
Right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Um, it is um, 8.08, or about to hit 8.09 a.m. And on the line, um, we have our final um, guest, um, Margarita Windish, um, who is a Social Science um, member and, uh, and a climate activist. Um, and we have Margarita on the line to talk um, because there's, uh, there was a recent sort of news um, story um, that the Austrian um, Greens in Austria um, has recently made a deal um, with um, the far-right party, the, the People's Party, um, in exchange um, for making some commit, vague kind of commitment um, to climate change. Um, in exchange, the Austrian Greens has agreed to support some very kind of xenophobic and Islamophobic um, kind of policy. So, yeah, good morning, Margarita. Good morning. Yeah, so Margarita, maybe just for the um, for the benefit of um, listeners, um, can you give us a bit of um, background on um, this deal um, that um, the Austrian Greens have made with the with the People's Party? What what is sort of the the political conditions that sort of led to this um, moment? So yeah, Austria has a very interesting kind of history in terms of um, government and coalition governments. So since the Second World War, Austria has generally been governed by what we call a kind of grand or large coalition, which was the Conservative Austrian People's Party and the Social Democratic Party. So we've had decades and decades of a kind of what you call power-sharing deal with what here would represent like the Liberal Party, which is the Austrian People's Party, and with the Social Democratic Party or the SPÖ. Now, this had lots of issues associated. There were often impasses and people felt quite alienated by this power-sharing deal. And with the general more right shift that we've seen in the last especially decade, we have then also seen some changes taking place with an increased kind of... Um, or with, with, with a growth of what we call the far-right party. Because the Austrian People's Party is not the traditional far-right party. The far-right party in Austria is actually the Austrian Freedom Party. And uh, the Austrian People's Party formed a coalition government in 2017 with the far-right party, which the, the People's Party, which is also not the first time this has happened. But that particular coalition collapsed in May 2019 because of a big corruption scandal within the Freedom Party or the far-right party. So that coalition collapsed uh, and no confidence in Parliament um, was voted up and the Austrian People's Party was ousted. So that then led to new elections, which were completed in September 2019. Now, what was very interesting that happened in that election was that... So when you think this was in the end of September, uh, we've had... um, uh, over a period since then, we've had, you know, uh, we, we've had over the last couple of years um, a, a massive immigration that came through Europe via Greece and stuff from, from the Middle East, especially Syria, but also Afghanistan, which um, the right always exploited and tried to really push more and more anti-immigration policies. At the same time, we've also seen a really um, the rise and the strengthening of the climate movement. So these are two very important factors that have shaped now what, what, what is this new coalition government. Now, in the 2019 election, that re-election, what we saw 
was a strengthening of the Austrian uh, People's Party, which is the Conservative Party, which has a very young leader, Sebastian Kurz, who is now the youngest head of uh, government in the world with um, the age of 33. Uh, the uh, far-right party or the Freedom Party, kind of their vote collapsed, and I think it was because of the corruption scandals, and which was not the first time that there was a corruption scandal in the party. They've had it for years on end. But very importantly also, we saw a real collapse of the Social Democratic Party. <clears throat> and that party uh, ended up with 21% of the vote, which was the lowest since it's, since it's actually formed. But we also saw the Greens re-entering Parliament. The Greens had lost a lot of votes in 2017 for various different reasons. The Greens had always had a parliamentary, um, were part of Parliament uh, since 1983, and then their vote in 2017 collapsed to about 4%. But they re-entered Parliament in 2019 with 14% of the vote. And that's definitely on the back of a strong climate movement. So... What we've seen now is the, the Austrian People's Party has really reshaped itself to not just the Conservative Party, to, to a more hard-right party, and they've taken on a big slice of the vote that used to traditionally vote for the Freedom Party, that, 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 the far right. So in some ways, they have actually, you can say, cannibalised the Freedom Party and been able to incorporate a lot of the far right vote because of its own shift further and further to the right. The other thing that maybe makes that party a bit different to what we traditionally see the Liberal Party in Australia is that when it comes to kind of climate change issues, they weren't necessarily at all a kind of climate denialist party. They often had some reasonable pro kind of green politics. So that makes it quite different. Mm. Now, the fact that we had such a strong environment movement that actually acknowledges, even in Austria, acknowledges the climate crisis, I think put the Greens into a very compromising position now. The Freedom Party didn't... Uh, I mean, the, the, the People's Party had the highest vote in the 2019 election of 37%, but they couldn't govern in their own right. They didn't really want to maybe enter back into far-right coalition. The Social Democrats were off the table for them with the coalition, so they pretty much just left the Greens. And what we know is there was immense pressure on the Greens also to form a coalition government with the Conservative Party in order to stop the Conservative Party re-entering a coalition with the far right. So I think what we see here are two things. We have an acknowledgement by the right that they have to take some more action on climate change. Um, but, of course, the question is, how do we do that? And that kind of coalition that the Greens now have entered, to some extent, I think, also represents a reaction to the popular awareness of the climate crisis. Now, the issue here is, what I would suggest is there's this new coalition that was entered, a, 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 a conservative Greens, or what they call a kind of teal-green coalition. I would actually argue is more a de-radicalisation de strategy of the climate movement, and green was really the neoliberal project. Some people already talk about, are we seeing with this kind of coalition the seeds of a kind of eco-fascism, or a climate apartheid, 
are we talking about um, creating a green fortress Europe? So these are already some of the discussions that are happening on the political scene in Europe. Hmm. And what can you tell us? Can you tell us a bit about um, this coalition in terms of like the actual kind of deal that they kind of um, made? Like what are the sort of particulars mm-hmm. of, of, of the deal? Absolutely. I think this is really, really important for, I think, all of us to understand what this kind of a deal between an explicitly kind of ecological party that also had social justice and human rights principle, wasn't anti-capitalist, but had a lot of kind of uh, progressive social democratic values with a very conservative, increasingly kind of right wing, but also neoliberal party like the Austrian People's Party. So what that basically means is when you look at that deal, um, the Greens are very pleased to, to talk about a kind of deal that they have been able to strike. Uh, I mean, the deal is really when we talk about the new kind of program for this coalition, which is to make Austria kind of climate neutral or carbon neutral by 2040. This is even more advanced than the EU kind of projection of having the European Union uh, um, you know, carbon neutral by 2050. Austria is saying by 2040. Now, the question is, how are you going to get there? And that the devil is always in the detail and people are already questioning the fact that is Austria, is the government able to do something like that with the means that they are actually projecting? And people are saying it's not possible. Now, the talk is about reducing kind of taxes. So that's, that's the complexity. Maybe I should go back one uh, step back. So the, 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 the Chancellor, the Austrian Chancellor from the Conservative Party says we're going to be strong on climate and strong on borders. So the way to have this climate neutral deal, the actual measures are very, very minimal. They're talking about a, um, some, a change in the kind of taxation to have more uh, taxation around that would benefit the ecology or, or, or also the environment. But at the same time, the government is actually talking of bringing down taxes, which again, we know benefits capital and not necessarily working class people. Um, some of the... Some of the reasonable measures that have been implemented or will be implemented is also that Austria wants to have its entire electricity um, consumption and creation uh, from renewable energy by 2030. Um, there'll be some suggestions also to hoping to have all kind of heating for homes and, and also industry without uh, oil and coal. So there would be around renewable energy also. Um, but, and also to put a high, much higher tax on SUVs and big cars. Um, now, while this is touted as a great achievement, the majority of poorer people don't have expensive cars anyway. And the people that have these expensive CO2 guzzling and fossil fuel guzzling cars are people that can, can also afford a much higher tax. What people are criticising around the deal when it comes to the environment is that there are no real... Uh, inroads being made to reduce the power and the interest of the car, um, but also the the oil industry. And there's a massive push both by Greens and the the government to um, to, to incentivise green kind of invest, investment that is actually done by by sort of private industry. So. That kind of uh, environmental reform is all within the kind of market system. 
there is nowhere any discussion in the kind of new um, platform that would actually give the state more power, would really increase much more investment into renewables and get the state to run key industries or increase that, that element. So what that really means is while it looks very good in the sense of having these carbon uh, emissions reduction scheme and all of that, the fact is what people are criticising is, is it actually achievable with the current kind of um, proposals around climate change? There are, there's nothing that is proposed to actually stop some of the big fossil fuel intensive projects like a third runway at the airport in Vienna or another tunnel or another massive freeway. So the Greens, in a way, have criticised to having completely um, capitulated to having these big infrastructures go ahead. Hmm. So, this is, yeah, so this is just around the climate front. Yeah, but so what are some of the measures that they've sort of agreed to that sort of um, that have been pushed by? What are some of the xenophobic, um, Islamophobic policies that have been conceded to as a result of this um, deal? Yeah, so what what a lot of people actually saying is the only change from the previous coalition, which was the Conservatives with the far right, has been around the climate. That's been the only concession. But the kind of attacks on working class people and especially immigrants are continuing. Uh, and that's the massive critique. So people are in a way saying the green feels like the Greens are actually trying to rescue neoliberalism and, the, and, and not actually the planet and are able and have basically done a deal with the devil where there might be some concessions on, on the climate, but, but, but basically selling out especially refugees and, mm. and, 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 and immigrants. And, yeah. and that's really one of the big issues is that, um, that what Austria, um, that, that authoritarianism around really reducing immigrants' rights has been intensified. Uh, there's now a talk about a kind of preventative detention system in Austria where potentially dangerous immigrants or refugees that actually have committed no crime can be preventatively detained. Uh, the other really big important um, issue is that, again, uh, the, is, is, is the kind of vilification of uh, uh, Muslim immigrants. And what we see again is, of course, how is that expressed? It's, it's the hijab becomes, becomes a central kind of focal point. Um, of, of the policy, and now uh, we're talking about um, that, that there's a hijab ban also for for uh, young Muslim women up to the age of 14 in schools. Um, another really important element is what people also call when it comes to immigration policies a kind of they talk about this as an integration strategy that the Austrian have uh, also in schools, but what people are saying it's actually more like an education apartheid where entire classrooms are created for school kids, of immigrant school kids that don't have German as their first language that are now being educated in classes where there's only immigrant kids. Now, what a lot of people are already saying, the, that this is actually not something positive, but it actually marginalised kids of migrants even more uh, than before and it actually can create... Uh, even more kind of social, um, you know, marginalisation. So, and but most importantly, I would argue around the questions of asylum um, uh, and Islam and 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 kind of that, those policies is that within uh, the immigration and asylum policy package of 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 this this government, you have 
what they call a coalition-free space. So, in other words, if there's a particular issue that the main party or the Conservative People's Party would like to implement when it comes to asylum seeker policy, they don't have to discuss that with the Greens. They can do that with any other uh, party in government. So let's say if they want to push an even more conservative agenda, an even more repressive agenda around asylum seeker policy, they can do that with a different partner in, in government. And that is a major concession, again, that was given by the Greens. And so what we see here is um, a real kind of, you know, it, it's like the greening of Fortress Europe. And that's where people are really concerned and say, so we're saying we, 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 we are giving up the rights of immigrants, which we know, um, you know, the, 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 there'll be more asylum seekers and immigrants coming from countries that are hardest hit by the climate crisis. Mm. Um, and are they being more and more excluded uh, for the benefit of a, of a kind of elitist green politics? Mm. Yeah. So because we're running um, um, out of time now, I guess... Um, in terms of this whole coalition, what do you think it? What are the, the type of political lessons do you think it has um, for the climate movement, especially around the question of climate justice? Well, it, it, uh, it's a very difficult position the Greens found them in, but I guess what it highlights again is that unless you're also having your programs that you're going to tackle neoliberalism and capitalism, there will be no justice when it comes to climate. You will create a climate kind of climate apartheid. So any party that is prepared to enter into a coalition that is continuing a right-wing conservative um, economic agenda will inevitably sell out on human rights and social justice, where then the green kind of ecological agenda becomes an elite program. And that will further actually embolden the right. So in other words, I mean, that the the absolute importance, I think, is for the green movement and the ecological movement to be able to be uh, radical in its demands when it comes also to reforming the economic system and not be able to make any concessions on that. So while, you know, government is important to be able to have very strong radical movements that are pushing also for a change in the economic system, I think that's the only kind of um, solution we can, we can really have uh, that, that will actually guarantee a, a climate justice kind of uh, program. Hmm. Well, thank you very much, um, Margarita, for that. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, definitely reeks of eco-fascism. There's actually a, um, a recent article in Green Left uh, about that uh, online. You can check it out uh, about eco-fascism and the possibility here in Australia. All right. Um, so thank you, listeners. Um, stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions and um, hope to um, see you for another week of Radical Radio next Friday from 7 a.m. <laughs> This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, 
You can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned in to 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. to start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Oh, hey.